0: Con Lankerireta, a podcast on his Sherekesi, is Sherecoit Fepostokan. Welcome to Con Langery, the podcast about constructed languages and the people who create them. I'm George Corley. With us in the great state of Wisconsin is William Annis. Hello. And up in uh, New Jersey, we have Mike Lentine. Hello. Uh, So, um, I announced a couple podcasts ago that there was going to be a thing on CNN. I, I actually watched it. Neither of you guys watched it. You probably would have been slightly disappointed because it focused very heavily on Dothraki, but... Um, w- the people on Conlang uh, today, including David, were saying that, uh, they cut out a bunch of stuff that they said about the LCS and they completely cut out John Quijada's part. And so, oh, well,
1: that's a little vexing. Yeah. But I but, thought but one other person thought that it was good because it was presenting conlanging as not something that just crazy people do which is a nice change oh, of pace no, it in was media. Very,
0: it was very nice to the the Conlang community, even though it didn't really mention any of the communities by name. It was very much uh, a very positive sort of half hour of television about conlanging.
1: We've gone from being laughingstocks to simply ignored, so that's an improvement.
2: <laughs>
1: I don't know. They
2: well, I mean, ignore, about
1: only Leon. ignored in the sense that there are lots of people doing this besides those who do it for TV shows and movies but that's
0: true then
2: that's
0: that's the people who got attention in the first place anyway so right. Right. um so anyway that that happened and uh there were there's a couple of blog posts up on the next list uh site but um I'm hoping that they'll put some clips up or some yes. extended interviews. But I haven't seen that happen yet. Um, Anyway, I will... Why don't we actually just plow right into our topic? Because we have a gigantic topic today. We are doing another practicum, and this is going to be isolating and analytic languages. Now, um, William, there's a reason why we kind of changed the title of this at the last minute, because... Uh, sort of, we were going to say isolating before, but analytic is kind of, kind of dovetails into it,
1: doesn't it? It really does. So I wanted to, so far our, most of our practicums have been practicum colon getting rid of X, where X is some feature. And I wanted to call this getting rid of morphology. Hmm. But I think that limits us too much. Um, and I was a bit sloppy in the terminology, and I just said isolating languages, which to me I was interpreting as probably what we mean by analytic languages, so the difference between these is an analytic language is one where grammatical relationships are conveyed by word order, and an um, isolating language which has um only single morphemes per word yeah mm-hmm. or relatively low you know, or or, or low right again, as is always the case, yes. these things occur on a spectrum mm-hmm. Yes. Um and, and the reason I wanted to do this is because I recently saw someone posting, it might have been an old post on some calling forum or another, complaining about how analytic languages had were very boring. And I think yeah. that's a tremendous mistake. English may be boring to you, all of us L1 speakers of English, but within the realm of analytic languages and even isolating languages, there's a great deal of syntactic and lexical richness you can pull out. Um, in these systems, so I thought it'd be fun to go over various things you could do to make these languages more interesting for all of us people who love gigantic monster
3: words.
0: Yeah, Um, and I want, just just to say really quickly, I've made no secret on the show, I've said this before, just because English does it doesn't mean it's bad or you should avoid it. Just, you know, there are interesting things in English even, and of course you can do things with isolation and uh analytic languages that are very very different from english too so yes, exactly it's 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 not like oh english falls in this typological category uh let's not do that other if you did that you would never make an svo language that seems kind of stupid mm-hmm. to uh to cut that out of your um cut that out A of repertoire. your repertoire yes yeah. Yeah, but anyway, why don't we get actually into the meat of the discussion here? So, um what is the difference between isolating and analytic? And of course they they overlap quite a bit, but what is the difference mainly?
1: Well, I mean I guess I've sort of hit on this at the beginning there. Analytic is basically your word order determines syntactic rule, and an isolating language has to do with how many morphemes are in your words.
3: Okay. Uh, so they mm-hmm.
1: so go ahead. my can overlap, but not always. Is what I was just gonna yeah, say. Yeah, I, I think often there's an overlap between these kinds of languages. So one of the classic example of of an isolate, highly isolating, highly analytic language is something like Vietnamese, mm-hmm. or probably Cantonese. Counts Mandarin less so because it produces lots of compound words.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So it, that's that's where the confusion can come. English has a very is a very analytic language but it's not isolating because we have lots of multi morpheme words, Mm -hmm. impossible, unlikely, um, deliciousness. (laughs)
3: Uh Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, we
0: have, we have quite a bit of, uh, complex, complex derivations,
1: but we don't have from multiple languages. We don't
0: have that much grammaticalized,
1: uh, morphology though. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And uh, in terms of, being able to communicate certain kinds of things, I I think part of this is purely prosodic. I think we're playing a little bit of a terminological trick. I think that it would be very easy to create a completely isolating, completely analytic language that was semantically identical to Navajo or Squamish or, you know, the natural language we talked about more than a month ago now, you know, Maka. Um, It's just that the morphemes would be Uh unbound. Uh-huh. So, for example, Burmese is listed as an isolating language, but it has case marking particles mm-hmm. rather than case endings. Yeah. So, this kind of leads us into d- deep linguistic theory questions for, you know, late night dorm room discussions. What's a word? What's a morpheme? Where's the boundary between that? Um, I mean, you can now- even have an analytic language that has noun incorporation, which is pulled off by way of word order tricks. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now,
4: does it, like, I know, um, for suffixes, usually they put, go on to all the words in, like if you were saying, I like books and chickens. Both books and chickens would show that suffix if it were a suffix uh, that was showing the accusative case. But if it's a, a particle, do, is there a particle for each item in the series? Or does it just go at the end of the phrase?
0: That could that um, gonna depend on language. Yeah. That could actually be a test on whether it's a particle if if you can make it apply to multiple things at once. But then again, if it, if it's one, one of the issues that I have in, um, in when you're saying that you have a, uh, like a, a case postposition or preposition or a case particle, mm-hmm. it seems it depends on the language, how clear it is, whether it is a particle or a, a, an affix. Because um, we were talking before the show about how Japanese, some people talk about the case, the the cases being marked by particles. Other people write them as if they're uh, suffixes on the word. But there's no way to test which one is true because the noun always comes at the end of a noun phrase, and the particle will always follow the noun. There's nothing syntactically that can can come between them. So, exactly how do you make a test?
4: Right. How does Japanese handle when there's multiple, like, uh, like I was saying, like, if you like, like, if you say, I eat bread and cookies, would it have a particle for each? um, That that might be, um, I don't know. Because I know Russian, you decline all the nouns in there and all the adjectives. And I think German. Yeah, but Russian.
0: Yeah. And Russian just has suffixes. I don't know how Japanese works with that. Mm-hmm. So I, I only have very, very limited knowledge of Japanese. But mm-hmm. if somebody could could uh, tell us uh, how that works in Japanese, that might shed some light on the situation. But again, that's that's sort of theory stuff. But I can't, I think it's worth noting that there's there's some cases where you have fudge room where it's not you can't even say whether it's an affix or a particle.
4: Like William right. said earlier, it's a spectrum, and it might be like saying, you know, where does one color end and the other begin? It might just be varying degrees among there, and, it, you know, it's not really so important what, what you call the thing, as uh-huh. so long as you know how it behaves and what it does for you.
1: Yes. Right, right. And, and that's why I I said earlier that I think the argument can be made that we're playing a terminological trick, and that linguists are playing a terminological trick, and probably there are some theories of linguistics which would assert strongly that this is exactly what's happening. If it's doing the same, if it walks like a accusative marker and it talks like an accusative marker, it's an accusative marker. It does not matter if it's a particle um, or if it's a you know conjugation
2: mm-hmm. or a declension,
1: rather. Yeah. So you might want to go with a isolating analytic language and still get all of the delicious case marking that you love so much. Hooray! Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that it will happen in different ways, and whether that particle operates on phrases. Or individual constituents is up to you. It's your
3: language. Do what you want.
0: Yeah. We, we actually mentioned, uh, in a couple episodes that you can have a particle that affects phrases, which that's a little bit more clearly being a particle or at least a clitic right. than being any kind of affix. And that can be one way where you can be a little bit analytic, where you can have, say, you know, John and wait, how would, how a um, sandwich and
4: banana accusative I ate, you know?
3: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
4: I suppose the sandwich accusative and banana accusative I ate.
3: Right. Yeah. And
1: it embarrasses me that once I would have known the Japanese for that, but I no longer do. It's been a long <laughs> time, so. I think all oh, is the uh, accusative marker. It is the direct object marker, yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. direct object. But whether you need. Two of them, I don't know. Someone can tell us.
4: My um, guess is that you would only need one at the end because I think there's a different particle for uh, conjunction. I think it's tall, but I'm not sure.
1: Yeah, that, that's why I'm not making a, a statement is because of to. Yeah, we don't we, we don't want to uh, tell lies on the program,
0: so yes. we'll uh, let somebody correct us in comments.
1: Um. So I was just thinking another language that has a very strongly isolating syntax, but a very rich um, derivational morphology is Indonesian mm-hmm. and Malay, which are basically d- dialects of each other. Um, so if you're interested in this, you might want to take a look at the grammar of those languages. They're good. Um, a little bit closer is a language like Khmer, spoken in Camb- Cambodia, um, which again, highly isolating syntax, but... Because of its syllable structure and various other things, it, it has slightly bigger than monosyllabic words. Mm. Wait, it's highly isolated syntax or highly analytic? Uh, sorry, highly I- analytic syntax. I'm going to confuse these completely throughout the show, and I apologize for that.
3: <laughs> okay. Uh, so. I uh, uh, was going to say, yes. T-
0: do you have any examples uh, or from these languages? or
1: Sure. In Khmer, there's a causative prefix pa.
2: Uh-huh.
1: So, basically, you have your, your normal Khmer word order, but then you've got, and your verb root can take this prefix pa, which turns a whole bunch of things into causative or trans them. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know. Indo- Indonesian's fun because it has infixes, suffixes, prefixes, and circumfixes. And reduplication, right? And reduplication, but I don't know how that, I don't know if that's derivational lexical item or if that's um
2: mm-hmm.
1: I know it's used for plurals sometimes so I, I'm not going to say anything decisive about Indonesian replication. but yeah so it has multiple tricks
0: okay so it's these are languages that are sort of I would think of like Cantonese and Vietnamese being very strongly to one end of the scale whereas right. these are maybe sort of near the same place that English
1: is, maybe a little bit further along. Right, right. Khmer is Khmer is interesting because it's mostly monosyllabic, but um, there's this idea that several of the Mon-Khmer languages are sesquisyllabic.
2: hmm
1: So sesqui is a prefix that means one and a half, and the idea is you have your main syllable, and then you have these um, minor syllables at the front, which are highly constrained in their shape compared to main syllables. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. So basically, constant vowel, no consonant clusters, only two or three vowel types are available there. Um, optimality theorists cry when you talk about sesquisyllables, because they insist that they're just syllables, but, you know, they're optimality theorists. Um, Let's see. Um... So you, I'm pretty sure a Google on sesquisyllable will get you only this matter.
0: <laughs> now... It's worth saying that the reason we talk about this uh, monosyllabic thing is sort of as you proceed toward the most ideal of isolating and analytic languages, it seems – and I forget where I read this, but I'll see if I can find it. It seems like at the most ideal, you end up with something that's monosyllabic and
1: very often tonal. Right. So those – and and not just monosyllabic mm-hmm. but with reduced syllable complexity so i found one paper while doing research for the show which hinted that the full range of english syllable types which is awfully large was actually reduced um as english syntax moved from synthetic to isolating hmm.
3: that's a very uh, rather analy- that is rather surprising
0: analytic. because yeah. english has awfully huge yeah, mm-hmm. we have hugely complicated syllables, not, perhaps not as complicated as some languages, but they're pretty, pretty complex.
1: Right, not Georgian. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and according to this paper, it was reduced over time under whatever pressure it is about yeah. isolating languages that push things this way. And, and it, in some sense, it makes sense that when you have elements getting squished together, that you're going to get larger uh, syllable structures. Yeah. It is it, maybe it makes sense. I don't know. It's easy to come up with just so stories for these things after the fact.
0: But um yeah, it's sort of even if English was simplified, I think sort of the more ideal isolating languages definitely have so similar simpler at least as far as I can tell because think about the most complex syllable in English, I think would be something like strengths. Which has, what, three consonants, uh, a vowel, possibly a diphthong, and then two consonants in the coda. Whereas mm-hmm. yep. in probably most of the Chinese languages, you can only have as much as CVC.
1: Um, there are plenty of isolating, no, yes, isolating languages, these monosyllabic varieties that have complex onsets. Okay. Uh, Kummer definitely does.
2: Uh huh.
4: I think maybe um, if your language is highly monosyllabic or relatively low morpheme-to-word ratio, um, having maybe not um, not having to add things to your to your syllable to get more variety is more. It helps there because for Chinese, you know, you in English if you have ma, you just have m a ma, but Chinese you can have ma 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 ma, and then you also have yeah. homophones. Well,
0: of that. I think I think often the reason that. Some of these languages tend to develop tone is to actually compensate for simpler syllables. But I yeah. think this, this goes a little bit because what we're talking about is what happens as you approach the ideal.
1: You don't have to go to the ideal isolating language. Nope. Indonesian is by no means an ideal, it has plenty long, multisyllabic words all the time. Well, you yes. mean ideal. Well, you know, it's I'm this only... sort of the- this sort of theoretical endpoint of highly mon- of mostly monosyllabic, high tone, very isolating, very analytic. Okay, yeah, which seems to be some sort of tendency, but we're getting a little theoretical then. Yeah,
3: okay. it's it's
0: it's a little bit theoretical, but the those traits seem to come together as you get more analytic, as you get more isolating. But it's m- mostly when you get into the the extremes of the languages that you end up with that sort of cluster of traits occurring, the cluster of features occurring there.
4: So... Well, um, can I ask just a quick question. Now, as we're talking about getting closer to, um, you know, isolate, isolating languageness or analytic language, um, perhaps, what are we getting away from? On the other end of the spectrum, do we have the uh, uh, agglutinative or do we have the synthetics? And do those languages have a distinct lower chance of this tonal happening? Do you know what I am talking about?
1: Yeah, I don't think it goes the other way neatly.
0: Yeah, I don't it's know. Not, it, nothing in language is now ever a, a perfect sort of. This will always happen
1: if this happens. No, it just but... meant like tendencies. Like, is it less likely? I mean, I mean, I know, for example, Navajo mm-hmm. has mind-boggling morphological complexity in the verb and mm-hmm. is tonal.
2: Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. I think
0: I think you have to think of it more as it's more develop, likely to develop tones and to develop more tones as you approach this ideal of isolating. But right,
1: if if there is pressure truly in an isolating syntax, no, an analytic syntax, <laughs> to simplify your word shapes, uh-huh. tonogenesis is driven by the loss of typically consonant codas. Yeah, yeah, I think that's what happened with Mandarin, right? I think exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, I would say how it is that that Cantonese, which still has consonant codas, has more tones than Mandarin. I don't know, but I think probably the
0: the the main thing you have to say, not necessarily that um tone systems are more likely as you get further along here, but the complex tone systems like Mandarin and Cantonese where you have more than three tones basically Mm -hmm. are more likely to come as you get more isolated. Although Cherokee has, um, has a lot of tones and it's quite a bit more synthetic, but I think most of the languages that are, have like four or more tones are probably toward the isolating end. Mm -hmm. Again, this is a tendency. This is not a rule. English is stress accent, but,
1: Sort of partially going towards the isolating yeah i I'm, I'm I'm I wish I could remember which one I know there are some highly tonal languages of Mexico that still have pretty rich morphology, so
0: yeah, so mm. these yeah, these are all just tendencies we don't it's 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 statistical tendencies mainly
1: that we're talking about here, which means that as a conlager you are free to break any of them that it uses you to break Excellent. Perfectly
0: true that's absolutely <laughs> true. You can do whatever you want. It's just, you know, these are the tendencies.
4: (laughs) In natural natural
3: languages. If
0: you you want to ape Chinese, (laughs) then, you know, you know what what you're getting into. If you want to break all the rules, you know what you're getting into. That's all we're saying.
1: (laughs) So, so are we ready to move on? Yes. Yes. We talked way too long on that. All right. So I wanted to talk about some of the fun things you can do syntactically that English does not do mm-hmm. um, within your analytic syntax. For example, verb chaining, sometimes known as serial verbs, are an extremely rich and powerful tool to fake things like aspect, mm-hmm. um, certain kinds of adverbial satellites, and it can even be used to fake lexical items. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in a language like Yoruba or Nôm, um, which is a language of Vietnam, you do not go out and say "I killed a rabbit for dinner." You say something like "I strike, kill bunny." Funny enough, the exact
0: same thing happens in Chinese.
1: Right. Chi- well, let's get let's say Chinese for a moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, let's okay. You might not need a separate verb for bring. Uh huh. You could say, he take book come, he take book go.
2: That's mm. true.
1: That's cool. And right. So sp- spend some time looking at languages like Yoruba, Lao, Thai, Khmer, and you see all of this interesting, subtle lexical richness you can get, which is not just producing an English dictionary that produces other words that have the same semantics. Much complexity can be had with these. So bouncing back to the Chinese situation. Mm-hmm. Which not only has serial verbs, yes, it has these resultative structures. Mm-hmm. So, for example, right. right, right. So, my favorite example from Mandarin class, and a phrase that you can use anywhere in China is "ting bu Ah, uh, yes, that means "hear not understand." <laughs> <laughs> I yes, can
3: William, I can't understand.
0: <laughs> and yeah. it, it's it's actually that's literally how it translates. It means that. You cannot you you are hearing somebody, but you don't understand them.
1: Right. So, in Chinese instructional grammars, these are called verb complements. I mm-hmm. think that terminology is used in other languages. It's really important to understand that not only am I have I said I he, he, I'm not understanding what you're saying, but it has a very strong perfective aspect overtone. Hmm.
2: Uh.
0: And you can put other perceptual verbs. Most, mostly kanbudong, I see and not understand, which, or can, which can also mean exactly, I, you... I can't, I can't read it also. Exactly, exactly, um, exactly.
1: Um, and if you don't have case marking, you can use different verbs and chain these things along. Like it says in standard in Mandarin is to use the verb for to give as effectively a dative marker.
3: Mm hmm.
1: Yes. You, you, you don't have an instrumental case. You say, I use gun, shoot, bunny. i'm I'm harsh on rabbits now because my garden is having some problems so Uh, or or, go ahead um or you even have
0: things like uh well i give a gift give you you sort of things that in translation seem redundant but is interesting
1: and allows you to Develop all sorts of interesting subtleties.
2: Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. And it it does seem to be that isolating languages, and I'm definitely isolating here. I'm talking about not just analytic, isolating languages have a partiality for verb chains because they come up in languages like Chinese and Lao and Khmer, but they're also very, very common in parts of Africa where another isolating analytic hotspot in West Central Africa with things like Yoruba, and all of the bad languages like Ewe and all of those.
2: Mm. Hmm, that's interesting.
1: Um, tacticians like them. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> okay. for the reason that I, I think that they're still pulling out their hair to figure out what exactly they're doing.
2: Uh-huh.
1: What it means is there's lots of free papers uh-huh. Uh-huh. available <laughs> on the internet. So if you want to grab ideas, it's easy for you to find material to look at to get you an idea of the full range of possibilities, which we don't have the time for here. But really, a, t- a tremendous richness um, of lexical subtlety, of uh, uh, aspect tricks that you can do, case marking tricks you can do just by chaining verbs together. So, awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So, have we covered that topic? Do we want to say anything else about verb chains, serial mm-hmm. verbs?
0: Oh, yes. Yeah. I think we've covered it. If, mm, right. if people want to learn more, they can look it up.
1: Right, and we can avoid the, the, the rabbit hole of Chinese. All
0: right, Yeah, <laughs> we we already went down the rabbit hole of Chinese a little bit too
1: and much. we may get more. So, <laughs> um, a- another trick available in these languages is to have lots and lots of particles. Yeah, particles. Yes. Right, so last week when we decided on this topic, Mike did a very funny, show us your particles kind of shout I thought it was entertaining. Right, so if you have... A highly analytic language, you might have resistance to too much word order trickery. Mm -hmm. Fine. Mm -hmm. Create topic particles. Create focus particles. Use attributive particles instead of relative clauses, say. Mm -hmm. Pile up final particles at the end of your sentence to do things like mood and discourse tricks. Mm -hmm. For example, is it ooh? I forget if it's Burmese or Thai or Khmer. I've re- read too much about these l- lately because I'm I'm working on a language sort of inspired by some of these, um, which is another reason I thought of this topic. There are some languages of Southeast Asia where every single sentence type is going to end with a certain kind of particle, which encodes the relationship of the speaker and his or her audience. Hmm. Ah, interesting. Including simply... Making a statement might encode that relationship and might uh, mark the sex of the speaker.
0: I know that Thai has has different uh, sentence-final particles for male and female.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm, it's Thai. It's Thai. And I, I should. I said sex. I should say gender because one of my Thai grammars has a special section to explain what transsexuals do. Oh, what's <laughs> a <good laughs> Which is, which is sometimes relevant. Um, Uh, I think there's quite a few in,
0: in, I've, I've heard that there are, are some, uh, interesting shows in
1: Thailand. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And the rich (laughs) vocabulary to accommodate those interesting shows. So, uh, um, the point is, you know, we've talked in the past about using, if you've got non-configurational languages, you can use word order to do things like focus and topic. Mm -hmm. In these languages, you can use particles and you can decide how those work as well.
4: Hmm. Um. Now, when you um you mentioned mood, do you mean grammatical mood or mood like
1: um like surprise or which I I'm, I'm, well, I meant grammatical mood, but things like evidentiality and mirativity and even surprise and all of that sort of discourse stuff can be encoded that way as well.
4: Yeah. Mm. Like I'm not sure if it would be grammatical. I don't like in Chinese the difference between ha ba or hawa, Like you know, like uh, okay, I guess it's okay, and then oh great, right, know,
1: like, exactly that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's- um, There's all sorts of different things that you can have just on random particles. But, of course, I don't know. I'm thinking you might want to avoid particle overload. But then again, it might be interesting if you end up with a situation where you could
1: pile up four or five particles. Then you have ancient Greek. (laughs) 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 Yeah, I think there's many interesting possibilities for combining multiple mood and discourse particles mm-hmm. um yeah really interesting subtle distinctions can be made there some non-obvious things so you can avoid the deadly dull perfect regularity um you know like we had with the language whose name none of us could pronounce because we couldn't do the palatal oh
3: impulse. that that yeah, yeah and right r- where he-
1: Right where he had different kinds of mood marking combining to do things like oh suddenly this means the future tense right things like this become possible mm-hmm. yeah um, with, with particle clusters as well I
0: think also people might want to refer back to our um, discourse particles episode sure. because I think do more analytic languages tend to have more discourse particles or is is that a tendency that exists in any case
1: I don't think that's true I just think English I think all languages have these but they tend to look like other parts of speech.
0: That's true. And then in in a more analytic language it might end up looking more becomes, distinct. It, yes. But yes. and another thing is when you're doing discourse particles we mentioned that at show a discourse particle can be very fuzzy in what it does. It can do it might have four or five different usages.
1: Right? Some some of which may have nothing to do with discourse. True. I mean they might be plain old boring conjunctions in some situations. Mhm. Adverbs or whatever, multiple possibilities. All right. So the next trick you can play in a highly isolating language is when all of your words are one, or mostly all of your words are one morpheme, it is really easy for nouns and pronouns to merge as a class. Uh Mm -hmm. So that, for example, back to Thai, has dozens, literally dozens of pronouns, Mm -hmm. which you pick and choose depending on the appropriate social context. Right, There are multiple ways to use the first-person pronoun, I, and it will depend on who you're hanging out with and who you're talking to. Mm-hmm. So really interesting stuff can be done there, I think. Hmm. Isolating languages don't have to take this role or don't have to expand this way. Like Yoruba is another mostly analytic isolating. like uh, Is it isolating? It's more analytic and <laughs> somewhat isolating.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, it has its own rather synthetic-looking pronouns. Mm-hmm. which have more complex morphology than a lot of the rest of the language, frankly. Um,
3: so
0: basically mm-hmm. you're saying it doesn't have to be this way, but more analytic and more uh, more isolating languages are m- more likely to form these open class pronouns that sort of you,
1: if you co-op to play nouns and stuff. Right. If so you want example, to do it. If you want to do it. So for example, in especially um, more newbie conlangers, become confused by the grammatical term gender and the social construct of gender. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so they want to do, they want to experiment with the idea of sex and gender identity and encode that in the language somehow. Please do not use grammatical gender to do that. Create 15 pronouns. That's a much easier way to approach the issue. I think
0: that's certainly, that's certainly the the, the preferred way to do that because, um, The pronouns are much more likely to actually have something to do with social gender or actual, um, or actual biological sex than what the grammatical gender, which is mostly kind of arbitrary. It is very arbitrary.
1: And so, for example, like I said, my Thai grammar explains how there's most pronouns in Thai are coded for, I guess, what we call sex, male or female. Mm -hmm. But, there are some that are epicene that can be used by either. And one of those epicene pronouns is was more common in old-fashioned Thai and is now used, again, largely by transvestites and transsexuals. Interesting. Those so here's, are- a natural, here's a natural language doing exactly what you want to do. Are those gender-neutral pronouns you're talking about? Uh, yeah, yeah, when I say epi- epicene, I mean they can be used for either male or female.
0: Yes. Mm. Um, like singular they.
1: Like there's,
0: day. Exactly. Uh, there's more complicated things going on with that, but anyway, yeah <laughs> <laughs> a a topic for another
1: show <laughs> um, anything else you wanted to talk about that
0: um, not really, mm, I think that's, yeah I think that's, that's, kinda... that that
1: says it it's an interesting way for you to to play with the language, yeah. so one thing yeah. I noticed oh, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I was just going to say one
4: thing that I was working on doing was uh, I was trying to use measure words in a language, and I was using them as sort of stand-in pronouns when you didn't – that's another thing you could use as pronouns if you want to sort of double up on something you already have. I was using – if it was like you know five books, you could say, you know, oh, I have five measure word books, and then you could just say, you know, measure word are interesting.
1: Everybody Um, drink,
4: because Chinese does that. I
2: know, I know. Right, right,
1: right. right. So, yeah. So, (laughs) so it's important to say that, you know, Mike's been using the term measure word, which is the standard word we all learn when you take Mandarin classes. We've (laughs) talked about them before as um, classifiers. Mm
3: -hmm. Mm,
1: Yeah. It's really interesting the different kinds of ways those can get used in the languages of Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. Sometimes... Without demonstrative or number, they effectively act like definite articles. Or indefinite sometimes. Or indefinite. There are multiple things you can do with this pattern if you know about it and want to play with it. We, th- I mean, I've not researched it here, so I don't know if we can say much more, but people who want to research it, so much interesting stuff goes on with those.
0: Well, and that dovetails into uh, what you say about ambiguities, I think, because, I mean it depends on i think you might might be thinking more of a syntactic but some of these languages that we're talking about end up with a lot of homophones and uh the numeral classifiers were one are one way of um
1: compensating
0: yeah. right the other is is rapid compounding but
1: right uh, so so it's important to say that even though we're calling them measure words and numeral classifiers they're also used with demonstratives yes yeah. Um and they might be used in other circumstances in different languages. So don't just get um preoccupied with the idea that they're number marking. They they mark all sorts yeah, of Yeah, if you want to yeah. use
0: them, research how they're used in certain in different languages because it depends on the language what they'll be used with as
1: well. Mm-hmm. And they're a strong aerial feature of Southeast Asia which is interesting in is in Khmer, they're available but optional.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You don't run into that often. Is that
4: kind of like in English? Like you can say either, you know, well, I guess because English does have a, a lot of those words. We just don't use them like a murder of crows or. Well, uh, we
0: we have the where they are often necessary in English for collective nouns. But like specifically, we talked about on that particular episode on numeral classifiers. We uh, we talked about uh, head of cattle because yeah. cattle is collective. You can't mm-hmm. talk about one cattle. You have to walk, talk about one head of cattle. But that's that's getting re- way down that rabbit hole. I think people <laughs> can can actually go to the episode. Did we talk about is it specifically numeral classifiers or is it under the numerals
1: episode or something? It was not the numerals episode. It was the first one. It was the first one you did. Well, I was the, not there for that episode. The, the very first one.
0: Yeah, I called them measure words and I did it, but it was mostly about Chinese. But I think we've talked about it in other episodes.
1: Yeah, I mean, it comes up in multiple situations. Anyway, go listen to our earlier episodes. Um, Uh Anyway, so popping back, um, while looking at stuff for this show, I did notice one or two papers reference in languages that have no case marking or role marking particles.
2: Uh Uh-huh
1: there is a very strong statistical tendency for that language to be S-V-O.
0: Huh. That Again, makes a whole lot of sense.
1: Not required, but very, very common. That makes a um, whole
0: lot of sense to me, because it's, it makes it much easier to tell which word is which.
1: But now, why S-V-O and not some other order? Now I a, oh, I'm sorry. Were you? Sorry. Mm-hmm. George, why, why S-V-O as opposed to any other random word order?
0: Well... Because you put the verb in the middle. I guess OVS could serve the same purpose, but SVO, subject before object, is much more common. Sure.
1: Why would SOV be worse?
0: Because...
2: Hmm.
1: Right, well, that's the part that confuses me. I can't come up with a situation why this pressure would seem to be the case. But it well, is. Well, I, mean,
0: it's, I it's don't not. know. if you, if Say if you had, you can have uh, nouns be used attributively on other nouns,
1: mm-hmm.
0: that could make the uh,
1: SOV too ambiguous. Okay, okay. So that moves us into the next topic, which I'm saying here that ambiguities, when you have dropped a lot of your over-role marking morphology, are real but non-fatal.
2: Uh-huh. That's good. Um
1: And plenty of languages deal with these all the time. So, uh, one language is called Nung, which I keep mentioning because there's a free grammar available mm-hmm. online, in in which it is a strongly head initial language. Mm-hmm. So demonstrative pronouns always come after the noun they go with. Mm-hmm. So it's not this dog, but dog this. The point is that means that relative clauses follow. Uh huh. So this dog I saw yesterday was barking. Um, no, that's not a good example. This dog the man saw yesterday was barking. The demonstrative has to follow the relative clause. Mm-hmm. But does? But then it becomes ambiguous about its binding.
2: Mm-hmm. Is it
1: binding yeah. to a noun within the relative clause, or is it binding to the head of the relative clause, or yeah. to the head? Yeah, to the head. Right. So that's a real possibility, and yet somehow the noun all manage. Khmer is extremely loosey goosey about verb transitivity and its pro drop. Mm -hmm. And yet somehow they manage to communicate effectively every day. So do not become obsessed with ambiguities that you can't show would happen in normal, natural conversation.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. An isolated sentence can always be shown to be puzzling, but, you know, think about context. Yeah.
0: There's, uh, yeah, ambiguity. Ambiguity is not as big a... We've actually been thinking about doing a whole episode talking about ambiguity because the thing is all languages have ambiguity somewhere and it doesn't harm communication that much.
4: Right.
1: So okay. maybe band, but. <laughs> <laughs> Right. But, so much else comes through context and et cetera and so forth. Right. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. true. A, a different show. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
2: Um,
1: and I guess the, the last thing I just wanted to mention was there are a few hotspots on the planet for analytic. Um, and isolating languages, and those are Southeast Asia and West Central Africa. Mm-hmm. So Yoruba and the GBE family of languages. Um, and, and plenty of these are well, reasonably well documented online. So you can, you know, do some good research and get some good information about them.
4: Mm, that's kind of interesting. Cause when I think of like, um, a lot of ang- languages over in Africa, there are also uh, a lot of like, um, language that they incorporate like the, the, subject and the object of the verb and i think of them as very uh, highly inflected so it's well is,
0: we're talking about different languages i i think of i think of that in africa too i think of uh, polysynthesis in africa but maybe that's just my bias sort of assuming that there is but i knew that there were some almost Close to the ideal of uh isolating languages in Africa as
1: well. Yeah, sort yeah. of I mean Africa, like America, is a vast field of many, many, many different kinds of languages. Yeah, it's a huge it's a huge. There place. are some obviously there's some aerial effects and the Bantu languages are spoken practically everywhere. But yeah. yeah, no, you can and even one or two Bantu languages have been so worn down by time that they're nearly analytic. They're not quite there, but mm-hmm. we'll be there soon enough.
4: Yeah.
0: Oh. Okay. Um Mike, you had a couple things that you wanted to talk about specifically.
4: Yeah, well, um, I mentioned, I tried to make these a little, uh, less wordy of points. So the first one I mentioned was word movement, and this kind of ties in with the, um, with ambiguity a little bit. But, um, originally I put in here, I mentioned the question of are, are isolated languages, uh, more likely to have in situ or question words that stay where they, where they are without movement? Or are they, um, you know, just as likely as any other language, which you know, if you look hard enough, I'm sure you'll find some of both. But with word movement, I would think if your if your words are if it's an ice no if it's an analytic language, then I would assume moving the words around would could garble up what role they were what role they were showing where they were in the, in the sentence. I think
0: we said on the questions episode that WH movement mm-hmm. it doesn't really necessarily go with anything else. It's sort of just have some languages do it, some languages don't.
4: Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, like, uh, um, yeah. I would
0: think more about moving around topic and focus and stuff, and, uh, again, I would bring up Chinese. Chinese has fairly strict word order, but it does have lots of topic fronting.
4: <sighs> yeah, well, that's why I said word, word movement now, because it goes with word fronting or WH movement or word fronting or even, yeah. Um,
1: Relative clauses. You know, I don't you, know, William. Do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. We've talked about specifically this issue. My impression is that either you have in situ, mm-hmm.
2: yeah,
1: or your topicalization or your focal structure becomes away. So, for example, if you have focus for clef- if you have clefting for focus, mm-hmm. once you've done that, then it is highly likely that your question words will be grabbed and used for that. Now, by clefting you mean moving around just in case people don't
4: know. Sure. Yeah, like,
1: you know, it is the man I saw.
4: Yeah, it's yes. it's more than just moving
0: around, but it's like a specific structure when you are moving topic or focus around. Whereas, maybe if you use topic and focus particles, you're more likely to have in situ. Right, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah. Um, um, but you can mix and match if you want.
4: Yes. Break break the rules. Break them all. Um, Well, there are no rules, actually. There's just descriptive. There's
0: there's just statistical tendencies. tendencies. And, you know, if there's one or two statistic... One or two statistical tendencies
4: Uh that you want to break, then go ahead and break them. Well, I think Uh, breaking implies that your language must be a certain way, but it's your baby. It's your creation.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, there's probably a language that does the because anytime you have one of these tendencies, there are a few things in language that are that seem to be absolutely universal, at least nobody has found a counterexample for. But yeah. those are very that's a very small set of things. Most of these things we're talking about are statistical uh tendencies that there's plenty of languages that don't follow those. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, generally so you're making one language most of the time here we make one yeah. language at
4: time so if there's one that you want to go against the grain then just go ahead yeah um so yeah that's all with the word movement um i was just commenting on you know bringing this back to w- with our topics here um maybe if you have more isolating or analytic language um it may or may not you may or may not want to think about do i have word movement or put it in place or i mean or just go with whatever feels right yeah. So um, I just wanted to comment on that. And then, I'd say
0: you probably will have stricter word order, but you still might have some movement. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Um,
4: and with the ambiguity, I wouldn't worry about not being able to tease them apart because that it's a, it's a normal thing.
3: All
1: languages have it sometime. Don't be afraid, and you can
4: talk to us <laughs> about it. <laughs> I
3: mean,
1: one thing I would like to mention is I've already mentioned a language like Khmer, which has, you know, analytic, uh, low... Morpheme use is pro drop and uses a topic comment structure or can. none of which is marked overtly. So, uh, so you can can end up does not have to be fatal. Yeah. Yeah. It's just,
0: I'd say you can end up with a little bit of word movement, some, some topicalization. You're probably not going to be radically non-configurational and mm-hmm. see episode 11 to further the difference but right. uh you know you're not going to have the 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 uh word order is going generally showed your uh semantic roles but yeah you can still have topic fronting uh-huh. you know or focus movement or wh movement it's not like one of those things is going to break your language yeah um and I found this interesting that you brought this up in a thing about isolating languages because I thought that this is kind of sort of the opposite. Because, uh, Mike, you put in your notes a little thing about triconsonantal roots.
4: Yeah, I was, um, well, when I was, I was working on an, an um uh, an isolating language or a language I wanted to be kind of like Chinese because, you know, Chinese is Chinese. Um, but I wanted, I was thinking about, um, I, Ways to build your lexicon, because if it's isolating, mm-hmm. there's only a certain amount of, of syllables that you have, and they start to look similar after a while. So, um, which, you know, happens. But anyways, so I thought about languages like the Semitic languages, where they have these, and I don't know any, so I'm, my knowledge of them is very, very limited. But basically, I think that there are, th- th- uh, roots that are composed of three consonants, and by interchanging the vowels that are you yeah. among them, you can get different, um, d- derive different meanings from them. Um, I think,
0: yeah, the, I think you have the basics of it. I think there's affixes and stuff with it. William, you know a little bit more about this. Can you have maybe a little bit of an analytic language that still has triconsonal roots? The thing is, I think of triconsonal roots by themselves making something classified as fusional.
1: Uh, Right so the theory people talk about non-concatenative morphology so i definitely think the triconsonantal root system as typically used in semitic languages is definitely um synthetic but mm-hmm. there's no reason for you not to use a system like that to generate vocabulary but still have a analytic syntax yeah and that's mm-hmm.
0: okay so so could you say Instead of instead of going all out the way that the, uh I think those languages ha- often have sort of uh some grammatical encoding in the in exactly, the exactly. yes in and the, the vowels. Pretty, but pretty, if you just had word. a pattern for noun, a pattern for adjective, a pattern for verb, or whatever word classes
4: you have, could you do it that way? Maybe. Sure. Yeah. Now, um one thing that we were mentioning about that when we were talking about the difference between analytic and isolating. um, I put a quote in there about um, Indonesian, which we said was very has a lot of different derivational morphemes. Um, the analytic language wiki says that, for example, Indonesian only has two inflectional affixes, but about 25 derivational morphemes. So mm-hmm. that's one example where you can definitely have a very rich derivational side yeah. of it, but well, then for your inflectional, be a little more analytic.
0: By the way, we should mention this because this is important to this topic. So derivational basically makes a new lexical item, a new word. Yes. Whereas an inflectional morpheme it marks some grammatical property, uh, like, you know, it might be a plural marker, it might be a case marker, it might be something else. Um, but it doesn't it doesn't change the core meaning of the word. Whereas...
1: It it, it's important to say that these inflectional things don't ever occur by themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: mm-hmm.
1: Yes. So, uh, so So one thing... I want to mention about word building. Mm -hmm. Even in languages that are considered highly isolating, some -hmm. of them cheat. Mm -hmm. Uh (gasps) Vietnamese has a number of compounding elements which simply cannot ever be used by themselves. Uh Uh And yet are very productive in producing new multi-word lexical items. Yeah. So, you know, you can still have derivational morphology in a language that calls itself isolating. You just won't be using that syllable as anything else in the language, but it will be usable to produce new kinds of words. Which is also important. Right. So, yeah,
4: other than those, um, that's I think that's all the notes that I put on there. I'll just do a quick check. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's all I really just had to throw in that we didn't touch on already, because we touched on a good bit.
1: I, I really love the Vietnamese derivational system, because it has two competing things going on. Mm-hmm. First of all, we have Vietnamese, which is a Austroasiatic language in its own family, and it is strongly head-initial, but it has been under the influence of Chinese for so long that it has a tremendous number of head-final compounds in addition to the native head-initial compounds. Mm-hmm. So you mm-hmm. have a very confusing situation typologically where you have compounds that can be either head-final or head-initial. Wow. I just like the, the whole
4: mass of confusion with that. Yeah. I'm looking at the Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese language wiki right now and it's, yeah, uh, Looks like lots of fun. Yeah. There's <laughs> a,
1: there's a, there's a Vietnamese morphology page on Wikipedia, which has a whole bunch of stuff for the, the compounds. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is where we're playing a terminological trick. You know, they might, they're written as separate words. They might count as separate words in terms of prosody, but they can't be used by themselves. Some, I mean, some of them can be used by themselves, but others cannot. So
0: there's, there's all sorts of, again, like we said, there's, you have, you can have all sorts of deep philosophical discussions on what is a word, what, <laughs> what, what constitutes a bound morpheme or a free right. morpheme. There's all sorts of stuff going on here.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And and that
1: was my whole point. Mm for having this is you can have just as much mind-boggling subtlety and complexity and confusion in isolating and analytic languages as you can in heavily polysynthetic, you know, 15-syllable word languages. In fact,
0: I think probably the most interesting thing about isolating and analytic languages here, with an isolating language, generally you don't really know where the word boundaries are. (laughs) it's just kind of (laughs) confusing and there's it's there. You don't have any good tests sometimes to tell whether something is an independent morpheme or not. So it can be a little, that's, that's why that may be one reason why that, that Chinese counts by characters instead of words for a document and things like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, I think that is, I think, we have gone on for a very long time on this topic, and given people a few good things. Do you want
1: to give people homework to make an isolating language? Ooh. No, I mean we could, <laughs> if people want to. I would be more than happy to see that, and if we get something as magnificent as the last one, but by a different person this time, <laughs> um, that would be fine. I just the next time you're thinking, you know. Spend some time looking at these languages. There's a great deal of really interesting stuff you can do without producing words of 72 syllables and a tremendously gigantic consonant inventory. Yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Not that, not that
1: there's anything wrong with that either. No, I'm not saying that. I do and love those as well. But I think, I think I've seen too many people bad mouthing isolating in analytic languages. I Mm -hmm. think
0: the main thing is we're saying that there's sort of a bias in the con language community towards the more synthetic languages. And we want people to use the, the full spectrum of what's available for language.
1: Sure. I mean, I have no idea there, you know, if there were lots of Navajo conlangers, maybe they would make only isolating languages just because it wasn't like their native language. <laughs> so it's possible there's a bias among English speakers to go for these really rich morphological. I, I sometimes think English speakers have morphine envy.
2: Yeah.
0: <laughs> I think, well, my this is going to be my last thought on this. I think actually, because we are art langers
3: mm-hmm.
0: art langers probably have this bias more than I think. Ox langers probably go more isolating because that's probably true. That's because probably it's true. easier. Yeah, it's easier yeah. to learn.
1: Um, well, that's the thought, but then
0: yeah, well, anyway. <laughs> but sometimes it can get confusing. Yes.
4: Um, anyway, I think so there's something. I think maybe for some people, there's something that's more elegant about one word that means in the deep blue sea, rather than having to have one three different words to explain the ocean. Like, maybe they like that one word, like and use the... an acid particle can mean into the woods. And there's that whole... Um, maybe Elvish has um, plays on that a little bit, because that, I know, has um, some of those things, especially in Quenya. But, um, anyways, I digress.
3: Continue. Yeah,
4: yeah we could go on about that for a while.
3: I, yeah, uh, we can
0: we 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 could we could sort of go but go on but this this is going down a rabbit hole and going away from the topic and i'm going to go away from the topic but into something else that we have planned which is we have a featured con lang believe it or not uh so can we move on and talk about sure absolutely yes, uh tyla is this
1: the tyla i think so Okay.
0: Timeline.
1: Um, it's a bit upsetting because at no point are we told where a stress accent goes. Oh, uh,
0: that is, that is a problem.
4: <laughs> it's okay. No judgment. No judgment. It'd be nice to know. Well,
0: okay. We are, we are critiquing this, but so it's valid okay, to so point out that he did not uh, bother to just tell us, just tell us. I don't care where it is. I just want to know. tell us. I mean, it's, it's, um, so we actually scoured the internet to find. An isolating language to go with our topic, and this it is
1: surprisingly is, hard. Yeah, mm. this yes. is I
0: somewhat mean, isolating. It's not. It's not. It's not near the ideal, I would think. But it's it's isolating to the point that it's interesting. Analytic,
1: and, and certainly it is analytic. Oh, uh, um, analytic, yes, definitely. the The problem is there are some. Okay, so we found one isolating language, but it was one of David Peterson's, and we've already talked about his languages, so we can do that. Um, I mean, we could eventually, but I think we need to do more shows before we start going back to the same language inventors. Second, there are one or two others out there that are quite large, but are also quite peculiar in some way. Mm -hmm. Uh They make no aim at naturalism at all, and we tend to focus on naturalistic languages, so they didn't Mm -hmm.
3: fall into our purview.
1: It's always kind of uh,
0: difficult to deal with it. So why don't we still kind of go through the same way we always do, starting with... Fairly simple phonology, I think. Um,
1: I don't believe that (laughs) it has eight vowels. They show there, but it has eight vowels and eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. It has. I think it has a
3: complex, not modest. No,
0: no. Okay, no. Okay, I was wrong because the way it's presented here, I was not thinking of how many are actually here. Yeah, it's it's not a complicated phonology, but it's not that... it's not really that simple. Um, well, it
4: shows... I'm, I'm curious. It says there are five vowels, but then it, there are eight there. I don't know if maybe the rounding is a uh, is an allophonic
1: variation? Or uh, no, the, the exact sentence is, and it's kind of funny, there are five vowels which are not centralized in any syllables. That
4: makes... But okay, he, so it's he listed eight. So...
0: So of okay. All the vowels, yeah, not, the, so I, so I so think so. he may have sort of um, redid his vowel system afterward and forgot to change something. That's all.
1: Well, I, I just I, don't think the first sentence is explaining how many vowels there are. It's talking about the behavior of a few of them. Yeah, I think it's saying of the vowels there are five of which
4: five of them which not that's right. Okay, I see what which you're Which
1: are talking. not
0: centralized. Okay, so he does have centralization. Is there any? Mention of this centralization?
4: Mm, I didn't notice any, but I'm looking again. Uh,
0: this this page feels, in some ways, a little bit unfinished. But
4: um, I mean, it's very it's very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, no, it's um, pretty
1: good as as wiki wiki grammars go. So his way of dealing with roles is to have a gigantic list of particles. I like particles. Which. And, and this is, this language is still fairly experimental.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: None of these roles match anything like what we're familiar with in nominative accusative or ergative absolutive languages.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah. that's really important. If there's this mix of agency and other things that goes on, which gives you a lot of role marking. Many more than any natural language I know makes more subtleties between the core roles or what we would normally consider the core roles.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. I would, I would definitely say that this is, this is uh, an unusually num- large number of particles for things that what he has: inductive, agentative,
4: patientative,
1: affective, affective. Yeah, um, which there's sixteen of
4: them. Right, there's a bunch of them.
1: Yeah. Yes. The the inductive particle basically is a Um, case role marker, which tells you that the verb is middle. Oh, okay. That's cool. Mm. I know of no human language where that occurs naturally, but it's an interesting thing. Right, so this is the experimental part. Uh And this is a great trick to avoid derivational morphology.
2: Uh (sighs) Uh-huh.
1: Encode what the verb is doing in your case marking.
2: Or role marking, Mm -hmm. rather. Mm -hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. He does have numeral classifiers. Um, but they don't really list them right there. Maybe they're down in the, uh, lexicon.
0: But. Uh, the, uh, that's something that you would have to list in the lexicon. I think I saw his lexicon and he actually, uh, for all nouns, he actually gives the numeral classifier for it.
1: Thank you. <laughs> that's excellent. That is exactly what a dictionary should do. Yeah, you that's, these.
0: that's, let me see. Yeah, it that looks the- like, yeah, like, um, yeah, And it's funny because he has things like year has a has a um, numeral classifier, which I don't that's think weird, is cause year
1: normally is its own classifier. Yeah,
0: that's what I that's what I'm thinking. But, you know, but he has Duen, which seems to be associated with time words.
1: And well, because I have to tell you how many. Oh, there's nothing worse than a Chinese dictionary that doesn't tell you the measure word for a noun. <laughs> oh yes, you uh,
0: you you definitely it's it's very important if you're doing numeral classifiers because basically that's the way that that's the way that when you're doing translations you will set yourself will know it because they are generally attached with some logic behind them but with often sort of a uh how do i say it? um Sort of a little bit of arbitrariness. So yeah, it's definitely, right. if you important. thought it was
1: hard in French class telling the difference between masculine and feminine, wait till you have dozens of classifiers to memorize. <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's nice about all of these particles, which the author calls functive particles is they're, I don't always understand them, but there are lots of examples.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's
1: good.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully you can actually. Uh, figure it out. He has, ooh, um, five moods.
1: That will make George happy.
4: <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. You hear the wheels turning.
0: Yeah. Well, I he doesn't give much examples of how they interact with things and such, but uh,
1: that's so cool. he has a. Uh, I think it's a he. I don't know who the author is. Yeah. Um. They. Um. Have a nice pattern. Um. In a langu- well, in most of the Chinese varieties, you have number classifier, noun, Uh huh. whereas in some of the, the Thai family languages have noun, number, classifier, mm-hmm. which is what this language has. And it sure seems to me, and this is just me speaking off the cuff so I could be completely wrong, it seems to me that in those languages that follow this word order of noun, number, classifier, mm-hmm. it's in these that the classifier can become disjointed and fly off and act kind of like something pronoun-like.
0: Mm. Oh, okay. Or it's more likely to happen.
1: Yeah, it seems more likely to happen than
4: those. Here's a quick question. Um, he mentioned, they, they mentioned, um, that the lexicon was influenced by English, Chinese, Tamil, Arabic, and Basque. I know English is not really, uh, as analytic as some of the others, but we talked about Chinese. How about Tamil?
1: Tamil is a nice, rich, morphological language, as are Arabic and Basque. Yeah.
4: So I was just curious how those languages
1: affected. Well, you just said it was lexicon, so. Yeah, but I I wasn't sure if they
4: had any. I mean, I'm just curious as to what um if there were any gram- grammatical features that carried over
0: i'm i'm sure that he 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 brought right. some stuff into it um he has he has some derivational morphology so this mm-hmm. is like we talked about you can have plenty of derivational morphology and very little inflectional morphology but so he has a list of affixes that are used mm mm-hmm. um in fact, some of them, uh, a couple of them, I think, sort of have a, uh, oh, some of them actually incorporate
4: a classifier in them.
0: Uh, so that's interesting.
4: Yeah, like the agentive nominal. Yeah. The patient. Of um,
1: what was you going to say? So we have uh, uh, general and remote past and future in this mm-hmm. language, which is nifty. That's
3: nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what on earth is that?
0: Oh, He has a nice big chart on how compounding works. I was just looking at that actually.
1: Also, kudos. That's awesome.
0: Yes. Uh, It's very important that you tell us what combinations. And it looks like there's a lot of different uh, compounding combinations that he can have. Although, there's a few things like, it looks like uh, if there's a verb involved, it comes before anything else. Uh... But otherwise, there's quite a few different combinations that have different, slightly different meanings.
4: And then also... uh, I was going to say the compounding verbs. We talked earlier about serial verbs. I don't know if there's anything similar to that. But he says, like, read plus say is to read aloud. I don't know if it goes as far as uh, what we were talking about earlier. But it's, you know, kind of touches on that a little. Mm -hmm.
2: Right.
1: Right. Um, Another thing that's interesting is it has a system of evidentiality. Mm-hmm. and unlike most conlangers who like lots of evidentials this is a simple direct versus indirect system yeah that was nice
2: Yay, something yeah, simple a nice Although little... it,
1: it confuses this by having these overt illocutionary particles which are a bit funky
0: yeah what is the illocution exactly
1: um they indicate overtly kinds of speech act things so the, illocu- the the bare illocutionary allows you to make an assertion Oh, okay. Like, I claim this land in the name of Spain. Oh, I see now. Right, you make an mm-hmm. assertion. And then there's an introductive locutionary, which appears to be simply a disc. It's it's less in elocution than topic, like you introduce a new topic. And then there's a continuative, which indicates that it's a conversion.
0: Yeah, both of those, of, both of those uh, look like they're basically discourse functions.
1: Frankly, they look like switch reference systems. Hmm, okay. Yeah, it mentions except highly, except, except uh, operating at the level of um, discourse rather than grammatical roles.
0: Okay, and now I see the I see below that the evidentiality he has just the plain direct and indirect. That's that's nice. Although both of them are
4: overt. Yes. Now it mentions that uh, this it, this concept is highly foreign to English speakers. What kind of languages do ha- show this kind of thing? Do you do uh, William? Do
1: you know or George? I know of no natural language that uses particles for this range of meanings. Hmm. Oh for illocution or this this particular idea of an illocutionary particle. Yeah, okay, I don't know any language where you need to say something special except yeah. you know if you say I you know I claim this land in the name of France. Mhm. I know of no language where you'd have a special particle to say that you're doing something in the words rather than simply saying them.
0: Okay. I make sense. that makes sense. Um Yeah, I would I would agree with you. I would agree with you that um uh I I know much less about different languages, but I just now heard of the term e- elocution. So <laughs> I don't no. know.
4: I'll uh, trust was, your word on it. What? Are these optional because he says uh, they say um because locutionary verb is standard the use of locutionary particles tends to
1: emphasize f- the topic or focus. So perhaps they're optional? Well, I'm confused. I I'm hoping they're optional because huh. otherwise they're going to um sort of load up your sentence with particles. Um
0: Yeah, there's already overt evidentiality. There's already a bunch of Yeah. There's a bunch of different particles that uh end up in the um if you look at the sentence structure, it's sort of interesting.
3: Yeah.
1: But the introductive locutionary and the continuative locutionary, like I say, just sound like switch reference systems, which plenty of languages do have.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Although this is less switch reference than switch topic, which is an interesting idea. And I don't know if there are natural languages that have this as systematically as this language does. It's an hmm. idea. It's interesting. It'd be fun to play with.
2: Hmm. Hmm. I okay.
1: mean, it sounds something like, sounds like something tremendously useful in narrative contexts. And perhaps this language uses a lot of narrations and, you know, um, didactic stories and all that.
4: Well, who knows? Who knows?
1: Yeah. It's hard to tell from the
3: example sentences, if that's true.
0: It's possible that he, um, well, let's see, what the only things he has a few, oh, he has like a conversation in his translations.
1: That's interesting. Um, Some of the derivational elements are interesting. I don't, some of them surprise me, but, you know. There's a lot of interesting ideas here. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, what was I to say?
1: Oh, there was something tremendously funky about the participle.
3: Mm-hmm. Okay. There's
1: one quite far down the list, the participle, a- participial adjective etzong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that. The examples are both active and passive. Oh. Yeah, I see. So that's quite confusing to me. Maybe
4: it would, um, looking at those particles for the, showing what the role is, perhaps
1: that would clear it up. Like if it was, um. But effect- this is an adjective, not a verb. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But I don't, I, I don't know. We don't have a list of word types
3: clearly
1: distinguished. Do we? Yes, we do. Adjectives and adverbs are the same class, but they're not particularly mm-hmm. verb-like. So yeah, I don't know how you would relate them.
3: hmm
4: Hey, maybe it's ambiguous and uh context leave yep.
1: way. Yep, that's quite a thing to leave to context, but sure, absolutely possible.
3: Yeah.
4: Mhm. I think it's a very you know, it's You can you can nice. arrange
1: things so that
0: it work. Um I don't know. This is kind of a uh, this is not a very long t- document, so I can't really find any other things. I guess there's all these um there's particles for Actually, more than just comparative superlative, there's equative and excessive as well. Mm -hmm. Um, that's interesting. What is this? Oh, there's interrogative pronouns. Yeah. Well, of course, there's interrogative pronouns, but there's something interesting going on. Oh, there's you sort of combine them with you combine this these bare roots, seya and kami. With other things, so
4: that is kamu, yeah, kamu, kamu. Okay, now is oh yeah, the y can, the y can be a, sem, a semi vowel, I think, or glide. So
0: like, who could be translated as I means say, basically, what man or which man,
1: right? Which is a beautiful bit of uh, that's less. I always confuse these. It's isolating. Producing yes. your correlative like things out of these combinations. Yes. Yeah. Um, like I have found natural languages that do not have here and there; they just have this place and that place. That's awesome. It is awesome. I I would have again a few weeks ago would have thought that was a little hinky, a little unnatural. But nope. Sure enough, natural languages do it.
3: Hmm.
1: Yeah, Chinese does. I think.
0: <laughs> sort, of. <laughs> sort of. Sort well, of. Sort uh, of. Lee, Jillian, Lee now. has. Lee has. I think Lee has sort of a bleached meaning in that.
4: Yeah, but you do still have like for here, the here, and then yeah, not yeah, yeah. there.
0: So, anyway, I think yep. I think that's about all we can really say about Tyler. It's uh, uh, look at it yourself. It's 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 sort of a, a little bit of a sketch, but uh, there's some interesting
4: ideas in there. I think
1: it he has some. Nicer, longer examples. Yeah, not huge
4: though. Not huge.
3: Yeah.
4: Uh, what were you saying, Mike? Oh no, I was just saying that it's, it's nice to it can give you some ideas of different ways you could different maybe pick and choose like oh I like the way that this works or oh that's interesting or hmm I wouldn't have thought of doing that. And just okay.
1: Works. Not and it's well. just a, it's just a nice example, a digestible example of a analytical conling. Yes, hooray.
2: Um.
0: Alright, so can we move on to feedback then? I think so. Alright. Uh I got um this actually came to my uh personal email, but I'm going to uh talk about it on the show. I'm not gonna read it out completely, but um the author the creator of Breethenig um actually emailed us back and basically he was saying for one thing it hasn't been updated for a long time mm-hmm. and the the ha- p- pages i think these are the pages we were y- using that are uh hosted by yenven steinbergen yeah are uh the ones that are um that are more common this, by the way the creator's name is andrew smith um okay. at least that's what his what's on his email here um He says, the grammar is heavily based on Romance languages with Mm -hmm. added details borrowed from Welsh. That sort of uh, jives in with what our sort of estimation of it was. It was mostly Mm -hmm. Romance, but with the Welsh sound changes and maybe a few loan words and Uh, and a little bit of grammar. Um, Well, the mutations came from the sound changes. Um,
4: Yeah, but I mean like the Linnishan
0: yeah um they said I was especially delighted to hear three cheers for etymological spelling. It was a feature <laughs> that I wanted to preserve in the creation of Ruthnig uh so I'm pleased with that accomplishment, and I'm sorry to say that I have not investigated uh creating audio files, so I can't provide you with anything like that yeah um that's fine um and it I think we said at the during that show, like, I usually do not go for etymological spelling, but I usually put languages into self-contained con worlds. Mm. When you put it into the real world, I think etymological spelling is great,
1: because yes. it's going to happen. <laughs> Honestly, that's one of the things I find irritating often about invented writing systems.
2: Is mm-hmm. they yeah.
1: Is they're, they're too... Clean, they're too clean, <laughs> it's
0: unnaturally clean.
1: It is unnaturally clean and orderly,
0: yeah. <laughs> it, invented writing systems definitely happen that I think that that's actually a good thing to do for a romanization. But when you're making a writing system or when you're writing a language that logically is written in the Latin alphabet natively, you should do a little bit of the etymological stuff.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: I just like the first two sentences of this feedback, which is I listened to it with amusement and appreciation. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I think you gave the language a fair judgment and I'm happy with that. So yay, no one hates all us right. for talking about their languages. Great mm-hmm. success.
0: Okay. Um and that's about all we have to say. I'm go- I'll I'll ask him if we can uh put this since he emailed it to me and not to ConLanger at gmail dot com. I'm not certain if he actually wants us to, uh, to like print this whole sure. email. So I'll ask him. But, uh, if he agrees to that, then that will be in the show notes. Um, in any case, I think that's an episode. Can yeah, yeah, we yeah. say, William, do you have any final w- words
1: of wisdom? I don't have any wisdom this week. I was going to say I am going to be at Worldcon in Chicago this year. Which is over Labor Day weekend? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Labor Day weekend. Um, talking about not being, but if there are other conlangers going, let us know. Uh, I don't know if there's going to be an official appearance of Language Creation Society. It depends on whether or not uh, David Peterson can get there, which is not certain at this point. But maybe we mm-hmm. can have a little conlang fun if
0: right. they if they can be there. If if there's official LCS people there which i think that might be going on then that would be great if not uh i expect william as a member that you will get some flyers sure (laughs) um but uh and hand them out but (laughs) yeah that's great i'm not going to any conferences as far as i know in the near future but uh or conventions sorry right? right um uh but that's that's cool if you guys if anybody's going to world con let us get, know. In, get in touch with william
4: maybe. i uh, i've actually never heard of it so i have to look that up <laughs> yeah uh and uh, they're the people who give the hugo awards
0: <laughs> yes <laughs>
2: anyway
0: uh, oh lots of lots
4: of sci-fi people will be there then yes
2: absolutely and if
4: i can manage i'd love to go yeah um mike do you have any final words wisdom Um, no, pretty much just try crazy things and see how it works, and best of luck. Keep conlanging.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm going to say, happy conlanging. You have been listening to Conlangery. You can find the show notes for this episode and all previous episodes at conlangery.com, including links to our featured conlang and a few resources to help you make sense of today's topic. You'll also find links to subscribe to us on iTunes or through other podcatchers, to our Twitter, facebook and google plus pages and a whole lot more questions comments and suggestions may be sent to conlangery at gmail.com you can also submit those translated greetings we play at the top of the show or conscripts to display in our header please see the contribute page for details thanks for listening
1: a very strong statistical tendency um okay did someone just fall over <laughs> i no, think nice.
4: something fell off my desk and i'm sorry about that all right well george can edit that out <laughs> back yes, to the I'm thing sorry. uh yeah where your where your thing is there it says
1: and de- demons tradives oops yeah that's, that's why makes. i was like ah! <laughs> well you should remember that for a long time creating secret languages in china was a capital offense I mean, before I had exposure to Chinese, I thought Chi- the, the idea of having four tones was kind of like, doo, 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 but it's nothing like that, right? Right. People get people have strange ideas about this. What was I going to? Oh, I was going to add a note. Oh,
0: uh, what? Four tones? Yeah, four tones is not a big deal. As no,
2: it's not. As, that hard.
0: I I think when you get um,
2: when, when you get, get to things up like to, like, like, six like six tones, it starts
0: yeah. to sound very musical.
4: I'm sorry if I'm sniffling. When I left over the weekend, I left my air freshener on, so now it's like really powerfully, overwhelmingly cherry-scented in here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's kind of gross. That would make me nauseous. You know, you just just mute and blow your nose a few times. It'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I'll do so. I'll do it. I'll do it uh, inconspicuously. I'm just going to leave it and come back to it and hope that the madness will have disappeared.
0: I have to say. Uh, not to like pick on anybody but it seems like final words of
1: wisdom is a little bit less fun without the running gag of Bianca never has anything to say